his karate lessons might not turn him into a black belt. Hi-ya! And even after band camp, he might not be the greatest musician. But with the 3% annual percentage yield you can earn on a PenFed premium online savings account, your goal of supporting his dreams, thanks for everything, mom and dad, will always be worth it. Apply today at PenFed.org savings. Federally insured by NCUA. $5 minimum to open account. To receive any advertised product, you must become a member of PenFed. PenFed's got great rates for everyone. Hey, it's uh, 7.08 in the Twin Cities, 34 degrees. Uh, great to be with you on a Saturday evening. Just want to let you know, normally I get to chat with uh, my friend Professor David Schultz. Uh, on the 8 o'clock hour, but because of a special high school football coverage with Steve Thompson from 8 to 10 p.m. right here on WCCO Radio, uh, David Schultz has agreed to come on an hour earlier. So thank you so much, sir. Great to chat with you. Same with here. I'm, I'm not sure if we have different listeners for me at this hour then. Yes, I know. I, I think people will be thrilled to hear you. So um, let me ask you this. A lot going on, as always, I um, want to ask you, there are reports, it was the lead story on CBS, CNN is reporting it, other network outlets are reporting it as well, the likelihood of the first indictments in this Russia probe. What are your thoughts about that? Well, first off, I think it, it, the likelihood it's going to be either Flynn or Manafort. And I say that because the grand juries that were impaneled to, um, you know, by Bob Mueller were primarily looking into activities surrounding the two of them. Of course, we don't know, um, but that's the speculation. Exactly what the charges are, we have no idea of any of the stuff at this point. You know, but, but assuming these, these stories are true, this is pretty significant because come Monday or Tuesday next week, you know, we're going to have the first indictments, and this is going to be the start of, and I think we talked about this on the 8 o'clock segment a few weeks ago, this is going to be the start of a very, very sort of cold fall and winter and into next year for Donald Trump because you're going to have at least one, if not two people, um, let's say one at this point, persons in his administration or close advisors facing a trial going into the 2018 elections and overshadowing anything Trump tries to do as president for the next several months. Uh, Let me ask you, I mean, you know, this is still so early in his presidency. I mean, he has been president for what is it now? Not even 10 months. Not even 10 months. I mean, in terms of potential indictments, and and again, you know, it it hasn't happened yet, but there are certainly indications that it will happen as soon as as this week. Mm -hmm. How, How early is this and how unprecedented is it? This is very early and unprecedented. And when I think of other administrations over time in terms of the scandals they have faced, and let's just put it within, you know, for many of us, our, our, you know, the history within our lifetimes. You know, Nixon, it's at the end of his first term, actually going into his second term, where he's embroiled with Watergate. You have with Ronald Reagan, Iran-Contra, um, which, which occurs relatively late, you know, in his second term in terms of some of the indictments. And with Bill Clinton, his impeachment proceedings um, occur in his second term. And so for all of them, you know, what we know is it occurs after they've got a first term in, an opportunity to have some kind of um, accomplishments as president. And we also know that once these activities occurred, Iran-Contra, Watergate, um, um, Clinton-Gate, whatever you're going to call it, you know, like that, it pretty much ground their presidencies to a halt where they were unable to get anything done. And given the fact that the Trump administration, to start with, has been hobbled by its inability to move its agenda, you have to think that the impact that this is going to have in terms of moving forward from him being able to accomplish anything 
certainly through the 2018 elections, if not further, is going to be significant. And we also know with all of those previous scandals, too, um, they generally resulted in in significant damage to the electoral agendas um, or electoral prospects for, for their own parties. And so, so this is enormously significant in terms of what it can do to the Trump administration. All right. And, you know, but in, in terms of, um, you know, what the president is trying to do, it, it seems like he's almost sort of acknowledged that, that the Obamacare situation is not going to get f- fixed in his words, that, that, that they're not going to be able to get what he wanted done. Right. And so now the focus is on tax reform. And what we're seeing here is, you know, once again, I think a very kind of mixed message. There are specifics about 401k. We're going to, ta- you know, cap this, and that's going to help pay for it. And then the president comes along and says, "No, no, 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 we're not going to do that." I mean, what do you think the odds are of getting a solid tax reform proposal through? Be- well, certainly better, I think, than the Affordable Care Act, because if we reforming Obamacare, because again, if we think in terms of one of the defining issues for the modern Republican Party, it has been tax cuts. And if part of the tax reform is central to it is tax cuts, I think there's greater likelihood there. But but what we're forgetting here is the fact that you know this is the old devil in the details. You know we have a lot of details to put together in terms of of what has to has to go together for a comprehensive tax reform. We have a pattern where Trump himself, even though he likes to describe himself as a great wheeler dealer, seems to go back and forth on on lots of different promises and deals that he's cutting. And the Republicans, I think, are still enormously divided um, in terms of the exact details of what they want to accomplish. And so I would still say at this point that at, you know, it, you know, I, and I, I generally don't like to say fifty-fifty, you know, but this is time I will. It's fifty-fifty at best in terms of the chances that tax reform will move through without the facing of the indictments. Now, throw into that the facing of the indictments, um, and throw into that the continued war that's going on between, um, you know, Corker, Trump. Um, you've got Flake. You may have other Republicans who are getting s- sort of scooped up into this intra-party battle. Um, and that, I think, compromises also the ability to move tax reform. You know, these these intra-party battles here, it, it, it it's difficult for me to understand. And I, I get it. You know, I think, I think in, in any party, there are people, there always have been divisions or, or disagreements. But to have this kind of, of bitterness, I mean, you, you know, you think about um, – Perhaps you know Ted Kennedy um, challenging Jimmy Carter right. back in you know, in the late seventies, but to have this kind of infighting at this point, you know, it, it just seems extraordinary. It is extraordinary, and it's a couple of reasons why it's so in, why it's occurring now. Is that even though it was pretty damaging back in nineteen eighty, Carter versus Kennedy, you know, we look at the parties back in the seventies and even into the early eighties. And they were less ideological than they are now. You know, take us back to that point of t- point in time that we could point to conservatives, liberals, and moderates in both parties. You know, that you would have Southern Democrats like Carter who are pretty, who are let's say centrist if not conservative. You would have n- Northeastern liberals in the party, um, and then and then across the country you'd have other patterns. Republican Party, you would have a pattern that would range anywhere from you know liberals like Jacob Javits and Nelson Rockefeller in New York, you know, to pretty conservative people across the 
the country. And so ideologically, you had more mixed parties, and, and therefore it wasn't quite as much of a surprise, but you also still didn't have the intensity of conflict. Now the parties, both Democrat and Republican, have become very ideologically pure, and, and, that just, and, and, and the acrimoniousness has increased because there's a sense in which Every issue becomes a defining issue. And I think about somebody like Jeff Flake, for example. If I were to come to you and tell you, Senator from Arizona, if I were to tell you um, and say that, okay, here's a senator who believes in tax tax cuts, smaller federal government, who's pro-life, and who believes in a strong military um, and in supports um, U.S. um, internationalism, if I were to say to you, does that person sound like a Republican, you would say what? Yes. Yes. Of course. <laughs> yes. He's definitely a Republican. But now, given the fact that he supports, you know, this 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 U.S. strong U.S. presence and supports free trade, you know, which he also does, that makes him on the outs now with with Trump and the Republican Party, and therefore somebody who I would say is classic Republican. Um. Um. And now, now he's not a Democrat. Um. He's cl- old old line classic Republican from the let's say the the Reagan era. Um, this is the war that's going on in the Republican Party. It's this intensity of, of purity and a redefining of itself. Yeah, we're starting to see the same thing in the Democratic Party, too. But this is the battle that's going on here. As Trump is redefining the Republican Party and his own image, um, it's creating this enormous conflict. And that's on top of any of the, let's say, the personality, on top of any of some of the other issues that we might see there. It's just an intensity over ideology and what the Republican Party is supposed to be um, now and going forward. And, and in terms of, of President Trump's political survival, I mean, there are indications at times that he seems open to sort of building his own coalition, going his own way, which is what he has done, I think, all his life. But yet, is is he by, you know, getting into this war with individuals with his own party, uh, at times flirting with perhaps building a new coalition, is he risking sort of losing both, maybe? I think he is, because I think perhaps when you're the CEO of your own company, you know, where you can sort of do the my way or highway, or what he's famous for, the apprentice of your fired, you get to sort of redefine or control your own empire. And in Washington, uh, because of the very nature of our constitutional structure, separation of powers, checks and balances, um, that presidents really just sort of can't order people around. Um, famous, famous political scientist back in the 1960s wrote a book called Presidential Character and said that, or Presidential Power, Richard Neustadt wrote it, and he said the essence of presidential power is the power to persuade. You know, you just can't order people around. It's about negotiation. It's about persuasion. It's about figuring out how to, how to work the halls of power in Washington. And I think one of the things that Trump has, has, has yet to figure out is that there's a fundamental difference between how you do things in Trump Tower, you know, in Midtown Manhattan versus how you do things at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. And I think he runs the risk of, of undermining his ability to get anything done. And we've seen that. I mean, the fact that he has no major legislative accomplishments, you know, um, in his first almost 10 months in office points to the fact that he's been unable to serve as a leader for his party to get the Republicans to rally around him. But, you know, there doesn't seem to be, on behalf of the president, there seems to be um, 
a conviction that he is in the right. There doesn't seem to be any ennui. There doesn't seem to be any angst. Right. Uh, he doesn't seem to be um, – you know, there are some presidents who uh, have, have focused on that. Ronald Reagan was sort of, you know um, – and obviously he was a very successful president, but somebody who didn't seem to worry a lot. It doesn't seem that President Trump worries a lot about the kinds of things we're talking about. Um, right. and, and I think that's clearly keeping him going. I mean, it, what are your thoughts about that? Well, I, I, again, it, you're right. I mean, I think of somebody like Reagan, like Carter. Um, a lot of presidents are, are reflective in terms of their presidencies, reflective in terms of, I think, their, um, their legislative accomplishments, maybe their place in history, you know, or, or, or whatever it may be. And, and, and are, are interested in trying to sort of figure out how to learn from what they've done, you know, done wrong before. And in many ways, I think for Trump, we don't see that, and in part because, you know, he, he, you know, yes, yes, he's had several bankruptcies, you know, which people know about, but to a large extent, he's not experienced significant failure in his life, and he's been able to get as far as he has by doing what he's been doing. And so, so now that he's in a situation where maybe the skill sets that he had before, the you know, don't, don't look back, don't self-doubt yourself, et cetera, et cetera, which might have made him very successful in business, um, are now not working to his advantage here. And, and again, one of the criticisms that I've had, you know, we've talked about this before, is the fact that he doesn't seem to be learning from the mistakes that, has, that have been made um, in his first several months, hasn't really learned much from from the sort of the failures to reform Obamacare, or the fact that remember he wanted to build that law, wall along Mexico. Um, that's 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 gone nowhere, et cetera, et cetera. And so, so I think somewhere along the line here, he, he is sort of you know suffering from or um, either lack of self-reflection in terms of how to how to move, act moving forward. And I think that's pretty dangerous in terms of. Um, him in terms of him not being able to accomplish things. Right. Although to a certain extent, I suppose if you're going to be president, you, you sort of have to have a little bit of that aspect to you because you're going to have critics coming at you. Right. But it, it is um, – it does seem – and certainly you can see it in um, in the tweets, right. which I think seem to just uh, evoke – somebody who is uh, continues to be supremely self-confident in what he is doing. I think you're absolutely right. But at the same time, I think what we're starting to see here, and the tweets are a great example here, is that some of the things that, again, that might have worked to his advantage, both in running for office, helping him build his brand as Trump, you know, whether it's on The Apprentice and so forth, may not be the same skill sets that you need to be successful as President of the United States. And they may turn out to be what? Powerful diversions. I mean, the fact that every morning, I mean, what we know is every newspaper, every media outlet starts the morning off by saying, what did Trump just tweet this morning as he first got up? And maybe that's one way of being able to define sort of the, your, your media agenda, the coverage for the day. But at the same time, that is creating enormous distractions for him, especially when some of those events are what? Going after, again, other Republicans or insulting other people. So, so again, it may just simply be that, come back to it, that's the skills that work to his advantage um, at one point um, aren't playing out in terms of how well they work 
um, um, for at least a modern presidency. Right. Although he does seem to navigate. I mean, I, just, I find it so fascinating that he can, at one point, you know, alienate people, um, you know, people within his own party. But yet at the at the you know, the next moment he can seem to reel them in. I mean, one of the people that he belittled, certainly in the primaries and caucuses, was Lindsey Graham. Now Lindsey Graham seems to be back on his side. Right. And he has this ability to, to you know, and people like Jeff, I mean, it's remarkable to me that you have people in his cabinet, including the attorney general, the secretary of state, who he has publicly belittled and uh, mocked, right? A- and yet they, uh, you know, continue to to serve him and serve in their public capacity. And you know, at times, I mean, I watched the uh, press conference in um, earlier this week when he was talking about the opioid cro- crisis, and he praised uh, Attorney General Jeff Sessions. But this is somebody who he is completely mocked and belittled. And right. this is somebody, I mean, whatever you think of, of the attorney general, this is somebody as a former United States senator, uh, record. you know, somebody who, who helped make him president. That's right. Jeff Sessions was the first uh, member of the Senate, certainly, to endorse him as, as president. But it, it is amazing to me that he somehow is able to walk a line with these people, these, you know, people who have distinguished careers and then kind of reel it back and somehow continue to have them on his side. Right, and I think, I think part of what's going on here is that the Republicans view this as an opportunity. The first time in a long time where they control both chambers and control the presidency and the prospects of actually being able to move their agenda, um, I think, are on one level outweighing the their what I'm looking for anger you know intra-party fighting because I think they're hoping beyond hope that yes despite the fact that you know he's insulting him or picking fights that they at the end of the day can figure out what you know how to do the tax reform they really want to do or how they can again repeal Obamacare um, and so and so I think there is this sense of what's holding them together is something in terms of what they want to accomplish and and, and they're on the edge they're really on the edge of being able to do something here but every time it looks like they're close to doing something. It seems like oh, um, that that Trump, you know, does something that derails it. I mean, they were close, even just thinking about it in the last couple of weeks, you know, close in terms of what? A deal between the Republicans and Democrats to do a fix on Obamacare. That fell apart, it looks like. Um, the fix in terms of DACA, um, which the Democrats, that fell apart. And so, so it just it seems like almost as if you know if I were doing psychoanalysis and I'm not you know there's there seems to be something here in terms of he almost has this self-destructive impulse when it comes to getting close to securing his agenda. You know, and what about um, these you know sort of dealings with with his top administration? I mean, how unusual is it to have people of the stature of an attorney general or a secretary of state? Uh, you know, Secretary of State Rex Tillerson. You know working hard to try and, you know, reach some kind of an accord involving North Korea. And then the president, you know, puts out a statement on Twitter saying, Rex, you know, don't waste your time. This isn't worth it. Yeah. I mean, has something like that ever happened before? Only only if you're going to fire somebody. Um, or, else, or else somebody resigns, resigns. right? Like, I mean, because I mean, usually at that situation at that point, when when you've expressed – 
or you realize that your president um, does not support you, generally you either step aside at that point and say that you know, I no longer enjoy the confidence you know, of the person who I'm working for, or, or, or vice versa. The president uses this as a prelude to fire somebody. And the fact that these people are almost like I don't know. I was going to say they're a little bit like zombies, you know. If you think about it, you know, they're they're sort of half alive, half dead. Sort of have the president's support. So don't so, sort of don't have the president's support. Um, this is a very tough situation to be in, and it makes it hard internationally for Tillerson in terms of being able to do diplomacy because other countries won't know if he actually has it or he's speaking for the president. And then the same thing, you know, domestically is that to what extent can people feel confident that the AG speaks for? him or anybody else in his staff truly speaks for the president of the United States, and including when they interact with the legislature. I mean, if he sends somebody to the, to the Senate or the House with the idea of saying that, and that person says, yes, the president stands behind XYZ, a lot of people are going to wonder, does he really? And it may not be the case that the president does. That makes it hard to negotiate. Right. And, and, well, and, and, and certainly um, the implications, and you, you raise a really interesting point. I mean, you know, in terms of foreign policy, at the stakes perhaps even higher. Right. Uh, and, and, and you know, because obviously, and you travel a great deal internationally, I mean, I, obviously people are looking at that, aren't they? They are. And I was going to say is that, you know, the, our ambassadors and our secretaries of state are what? They are the representatives of the president of the United States when they go forward. And it's presumed that when the secretary of state, you know, is, you know, is, is, is let's say, talking to people in Japan or wherever it may be, that the presumption is that person is speaking for and represents the United States. And generally, you can sort of say that, okay, if Tillerson says X, Y, and Z, his word is good in terms of the president of the United States. Well, here, um, it's not necessarily the case that 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 could be so. Um, um, And so it, it becomes really kind of complicated, you know, in terms of doing diplomacy where people really don't know um, um, you know, where the president is going to be and whether or not they can trust that the people who they're negotiating with at the end of the day really do speak for the, you know, for Donald Trump. Interesting. All right. Listen, we do have to break, take a break, give you some weather um, or overdue for that. And then we also want to talk about a fascinating article in the Washington Post today about sort of the state of the nation, the trust that people have or the lack of trust that people have or confidence in uh, the government and also the JFK file. So much more ahead with Professor David Schultz. Let's take a quick break. We'll give you some weather and then we'll come back with David Schultz after this on News Radio 830 WCCO. Hello, folks. Esme Murphy with you until 8 o'clock. Buick Enclave Premium 2,500 plus 0% for 72 months or GMC Yukons at 0% financing for 72 months during the huge fall clearance event at McCarthy's Auto World in Coon Rapids. It is 734. All right. More with Professor David Schultz of Hamlin University. Um, You and I were talking actually um, before the show and about this article in the Washington Post about sort of the feelings that people have about the government and uh, the lack of uh, confidence, to say the least, that we have now um, just 10 months into the Trump administration. Yes, what's interesting is when you look at their study here, 
you have you know percentages that get us up close to 70% of the american public who think that the country really um, is in bad shape going in the wrong direction and in many ways perceive our country to be as polarized and as divided um, as we were during the late 60s, early 70s, during the height of the Vietnam War. And to a large extent, what's interesting here is that, again, it's across the board, including among many Trump supporters, and a lot of what this, this Washington Post piece talks about, and it's very, very interesting to look at here, is that a lot of it is really sort of saying that, that Donald Trump has really made the state of American government, um, wor- our uh, American politics and government, worse as a result. And I think that is that is really significant in terms of what the piece is um, is talking about. But it's also even a broader piece that says that, in general, our faith in, in the presidency, um, in our political institutions in Congress, um, is, is not very high at this point. And, you know, in, in terms of, though, the, the core support of, of the president, it's still, you know, the last time I checked was around 38 percent, right. which is not that far removed from where it was when he took office. That was more like 44 percent. So, you, 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 you know, plus or minus, you know, the, the error in the polling amongst his core supporters, there has not been really that much of a falling off, do you think? That's correct. You know, again, depending on sort of the polling, you know, the plus or minuses, I would say it probably hasn't changed very much. Um, what you, clearly, you never had the Democrats, but what I think we're seeing now is the hardening of the independents um, coming out against Trump, which I think is significant in terms of, you know, you know longer-term prospects and support for him. Um, but whether this translates into or how it translates into what the mood will be for 2018 will be really interesting because I still say that that the the mantra for the since 2008, with the exception of 2012, every election it's been about change. You know, so, um, you know, 2012 wasn't because that was about Obama running for re-election. But there is this sense in which looking at the Washington Street or Washington um, Post um, um, poll that that the American public is at that point now of seeming to say something now fundamentally needs to get changed. And and again, the part where the non-Trump supporters and Trump supporters seem to agree, if I can use Trump's language here, I think there's an enormous anger that wants to have that swamp drained. Uh, But who the swamp is, what it means to drain it, um, I think varies across um, ideology. And there are certainly indications with all the problems um, that some of the president's, you know, top staff have had mm-hmm. that that the swamp the swamp continues to exist, especially with sort of the abuses in terms of uh, in the private planes and uh, expense accounts and that kind of a thing. Yeah, I, I absolutely agree with you. And then I'm going to even throw something else in here, you know, which I think something else is is now starting to percolate, and I'm not sure how it's going to play out yet. Is the you know the Harvey Weinstein you know sort of you know the the sexual harassment um, allegations and how now um, this is going to start to play out in terms of the Trump administration too? Because I mean, how many accusations? Were there against Donald Trump yesterday? Sarah Huckabee, you know the the press, you know the press person for Trump said that you know all those women who have made sec, you know accusations accusations of sexual harassment against Trump, they're basically all lying. I mean, there's there's something percolating here. And again, I feel like 
I'm old enough to remember this now. Do you remember um, after the Anita Hill Clarence Thomas testimony, where where the whole issue of you know did he sexually harass uh, Anita Hill sort of you know came out? You know, it resulted in an enormous number of women running for Congress. You know, in the right. early '90s, and so I'm sort of wondering, are we at that point yet again? And, and well, this and this is you know another thing you know altogether. I mean, this is this is. Uh, you know, the Harvey Weinstein situation certainly has seemed to open uh, a door to um, it, it appears almost to be sort of a watershed moment. I, I, I actually was thinking to myself, what if the Trump revelations had happened after the Weinstein revelations instead of so long before? Yes. Uh, I mean, do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, I think this – well, whether or not the Trump revelations, uh, the Trump story then – paves the way for Weinstein, I don't know, but assuming your scenario that you have here is that the credence given to, um, you know, what, you know, what Harvey Weinstein were pretty much, I think everybody's accepted the fact that, you know, that what, what, the, what the women are accusing them of actually did happen at this point, um, you know, you know, give, you know, given, given that, um, I would have to think that that would have sort of paved the way for more credence, you know, um, with, you know, with Donald Trump. And, and, and the statistic, which I want to come back to, is that 52% of white Caucasian women voted for Donald Trump, you know, in 2016. Had the Weinstein stuff come out um, before, um, would that have had an impact in terms of eroding more of that female support um, for him? Um, and I think it would have. Well, it is it is certainly something that a lot of people are talking about and reflecting on. I mean, the, the latest sort of shoe to drop is something that I talked about um, when I was filling in with John Hines. I mean, Mark Halperin, who is a very prominent journalist, yes. uh, I mean, very prominent and certainly very, very powerful, also being accused um, of you know misconduct when it comes to sexual harassment. Uh, in terms of the um, – going back to, to this whole thing about um, the disenchantment, one of the things, you know um, – I've read recently, and this is, I think, a different survey, looked at that, that most people think that the divisions within this country have never been as great. Uh, it's been since the Vietnam War yes. that they've seen this kind of polarization. I mean, that's really pretty amazing when you think of all the things that we've been through since then. Oh, you're absolutely correct. You know, and when we think of, you're right, you know, whether it's, again, we just talked about Anita Hill, Clarence Thomas, uh, the the controversies, you know, surrounding the polarization, you know, of, of what, Bush v. Gore. I mean, lots of different things here. But for people to come back and say, we are, we are at a point which reminds us of how, again, when we were an incredibly divided country over the Vietnam War, um, I mean, this is really significant in terms of what it's telling us um, about, about where the American public, public opinion is at this point. And again, still coming back to it here, how does this actually translate out into what it will mean in terms of the 2018 elections, how it translates into how does this impact the ability of Donald Trump to be able to move forward? How does it affect, you know, the Republicans, you know, in the House and Senate as they're starting to look at, you know, where, where many of their supporters may be on these issues? These become, again, variables that clearly complicate um, the presidency of the Trump administration. Again, even without, as we talked about as our first story tonight, even without facing the indictments that are going to be starting to come down, of which I think whatever happens on Monday or Tuesday is probably only the start of, of what's going to be several.
And, and you know, um, going back to you know, so, so the you know the story of of the president, you know, taking on uh, Jeff Flake, taking on Bob Corker. You know, the president was attacking Jeff Flake, who had a very realistically very little chance of being reelected. Mm-hmm. I mean, to a certain extent, didn't the president win there? He did win. He's he has he has um, um, Flake out. Um, and his fight with Corker, Corker's, Corker's going to basically um, not run again. And Trump, to a large extent, has won these battles. You know? And if you view it in the fact that you also have Steve Bannon on the outside, you know, no longer part of his administration, targeting these individuals, yes, he, he, he is, I think, starting to remake the Republican Party in his image and it could very well be that what we see after the 2018 elections um, is an even more conservative Republican Party than we have now as some of these moderates step aside because they can't win elections. Again, coming back to what we talked about before, you know, Jeff Flake is what, is he two-term or three-term? I can't remember how many terms um, in, in Arizona. Um, and somebody who, who, again, you would normally think would be an easy easy win for for them um, but the fact that he probably can't win within this Republican party anymore I think is really significant all right we're chatting with professor David Schultz of Hamlin University um, we're going to take a quick break when we come back we talk about the JFK documents what some of them indicate and also what about those that were not released and why is it that there is still all these years later this fascination this obsession with what happened so long ago. Uh, you're listening to News Radio 830 WCCO. It is 747 here on News Radio 830 WCCO. As May Murphy, along with Professor David Schultz, uh, we saw uh, really and are continuing to see sort of, you know, the extraordinary attention paid to the release of these sealed JFK documents, uh, documents associated with the assassination of John Fitzgerald Kennedy back in 1963. Why is it, do you think, that there remains such fascination uh, with this young president who was murdered so long ago? Well, I think simply because of the fact, well, there's lots of, I think, reasons for it. You know, one of them is I still think for a generation of people, you know, and I'm a baby boomer, I don't, you know, it, 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 it's up there with like, where were you when the Beatles appeared on television? Where were you when JFK was assassinated? You know, it's sort of like a defining um, event of many of our lives. Um, um, something that's a shock. And for many people, it's kind of the, the what if. You know, what if he had lived? You know, would we have gone into Vietnam? You know, what, what would have happened to, let's say, the 1960s in terms of, of, of that entire decade, whether it's the Civil Rights Revolution or the economy or the Vietnam War? Some of that. And then the fact that, that it just is, is a story where, where so much of the investigation was shrouded in mystery for so many years that people were, were wondering, well, what really did happen? You know, could, could one person have really, really, you know, planned and done all this stuff? And so I think there's lots of reasons, you know, sur- surrounding, you know, the, the, the continued fascination, you know, of, of it. And again, I think maybe part of it, I'm going to go in another direction here. If JFK was perhaps our first television president, you know, this is... You know, I mean, his his career, his his presidency, his assassination. This is all about television, all about um, something that really 
um, def- again, defined the modern presidency, and, and, and I think maybe just affects, affected people because of that. And so, so again, it's, it's hard to figure out a, a, any one particular reason. You know, there's both the fascination in a legitimate way, but there's also the, the plethora of, 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 um, of conspiracy theories. You know, right. at a time in the middle of the Cold War, did the Russians try to do this? Because this wasn't far after what? The Cuban Missile Crisis. You know, did the Cubans, did Castro try to do this? Was it the CIA? You know, I mean, I mean I've heard what, I mean, you probably have too. I can't tell you how many different, you know, conspiracy theories to try to explain this. Right. And, and, you know, I think also, um, you know, perhaps it's it's for what might have been. Right. Uh, and, and, you know, obviously, uh, because he was so young, you know, such a young family as well. Right. I, I do think um, that the president's decision, though, or the decision that apparently was reached, the president saying, yes, he was not going to block the release. And I guess the, these documents had been sealed, uh, you know, at, uh, in um, 25 years ago, and they were scheduled to be released. The president, of course, could block them, but the president saying, uh, you know, I think a week or so or a couple of weeks ago, saying he would not block them. And then there was the last minute right. confusion and uncertainty, and then the president saying, uh, apparently, the CIA and the FBI. Uh, intervened mm-hmm. and and said, you know, we want to block the, the release of a few hundred of these. And so there was obviously this last minute sort of flurry of back and forth. But it's difficult to imagine how all these years later there could be something in those documents that would somehow damage national security. Yeah, see, I doubt it is. What I'm suspecting more is that there are still things in there that are embarrassing to the CIA or FBI because, you know, from what I've read, and, and I don't know if you've ever actually talked to Judge Tunheim. You know, Judge Tunheim, you know, who is the chair of the, of the JFK files, you know, back in the 90s, you know, and I've, ta- and I've, I've known John for years, and, you know, and, 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 and what he has sort of mused on it, he said, is that there is a sense in which, you know, the FBI and the CIA were warned that Lee Harvey Oswald was around and he might be a threat to the President of the United States. And maybe these remaining documents point to how um, both of those organizations perhaps bungled or made mistakes or something like that. And, and it may just simply be the not wanting to be embarrassed. You know? but, 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 I mean, all those, uh, those investigators couldn't even be alive, could they? That's, 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 that's the part that's a mystery here. Now, what, of course, this is all going to do... It's for people who believe in conspiracies, this is going to fuel the fire. You know, this is going to fuel the fire that somehow, for example, that the CIA was, in fact, you know, um, behind the JFK assassination, and, and therefore um, they wanted to block all this stuff. Um, so, so I guess the, the one, I guess the one who's the one winner out of all this are are all the people who get to spe- you get to sort of play with the conspiracy theories and connect you know JFK Marilyn Monroe the CIA what right. Area 51 in New Mexico and put them all together uh, but outside of that um, I can't really see of any legitimate reason for holding it back and again Judge Tunheim you know has said the same thing there's really nothing in these remaining papers right um, and and so I mean I think that almost adds to sort of a new flurry of, of conspiracy theories exactly. that, that people are wondering about. Right. Um, but, but it does, you know, I think it certainly reflects the, the panic that existed and, and, and the confusion that existed is, is clear as well. Yeah. But I think people are sort of wondering what else is there yeah. that they could be holding on to. Right. And I certainly can't imagine at this point there's anything 
um, embarrassing to the Kennedys. Because, again, when this law was passed a quarter century ago, um, Senator Ted Kennedy was, 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 was in, in the Senate and knew this was going to happen. And, and at this point, I'm just trying to think, what, who's left, what, Carolyn Kennedy? I, I think she's still alive. Isn't she? Yes, absolutely. Okay. I was going to say, Carolyn Kennedy's still alive, you know, and, and I never heard any sort of, I've not heard anything in terms of the Kennedy family objecting. And so it, it really is a, a head-scratcher in terms of trying to figure out if uh, you know what the final reasons are for withholding these remaining documents. Right, you know, and, and, and what kinds of, you know, conspiracy. I mean, certainly, you know, did people drop the ball? And it certainly looked like, uh, you know, Lee Harvey Oswald was on the radar, yes. uh, you know, of, of the FBI and the CIA before the assassination. And, and certainly that's something that... Um, you know, I, I mean, that that's sort of been out there anyway. So I think that's what's sort of mind-boggling as well. Right, and, and none of that's new. None of that's new. I mean, we've, we've known that for years. We've known, you know, and even with Ralph's release of these final documents, that the CIA and the FBI were sort of onto him, and we've always had a sense that they kind of, you know, you know messed it up or something like that. So, so, so again, it is, it is perplexing. And I just sort of chuck some of this up to um, sort of bureaucracies, um, you know, having worked in government, you know, um, bureaucracies that become embarrassed um, or overzealous in wanting to protect documents um, as part of the root of maybe what's going on here. Right. And, and some people say that, you know, a lot of this uh, Oliver Stone, uh, the, the filmmaker, yes. you know, uh, <laughs> deserves some of the credits for, for fueling the conspiracy theory for his that's, movie. That's right. I was going to say the most, the most successful, I think, movie of, of a genre. Flip side, for any readers who ever want to read it, um, the best book I still think on the JFK assassination is by a person, uh, I think his last name is Posner, it's called Case Closed, and it's an absolutely outstanding book that examines all the forensics and everything on the JFK assassination and really sort of concludes that more or less the Warren Commission got it right. Right. Uh, although, you know, there still remain questions, but it, it is um, and it's, it is sort of fascinating to look at some of the files that have been yeah. released, and, and they're actually Actually available. You go to the National Archives. You can read them, and it's it certainly was a, a you know yes, it was a long time ago, but it, in some ways it wasn't that long ago. And you can see these typewritten files, and then there are certain things that are missing, and there are you know you know handwriting on it, and it, it's sort of a mess. Yes, uh, but this was obviously a different era. Exactly. You know, so exactly, like I said, a different era. But again, for many of the listeners and for many of us here, still within our lifetime, and again, because all this stuff is is recorded on television, recorded on radio, um, you know, we can play this and almost have it instantaneously brought back to us. All right. Well, listen, Professor David Schulz, thank you so much for joining us. No problem. Uh, I was going to mention I'm on Rashini's show tomorrow afternoon. Absolutely. So we'll tune in. Listen, um, please do so. Absolutely. All right. David Schultz on Rashini Rajkumar's show. Uh, do you know which hour you're going to be on? I'm going to be on at one thirty tomorrow. One thirty. All right. Thank you so much, sir. Good. Talk to you soon. All right. The one and only Professor David Schultz. I uh, want to thank you for listening. want to thank um, the producer of this show and uh, also want to thank um, uh, Dan Cook, who's uh, doing uh, the, the double duty or the triple duty of keeping us on the air. I also want to thank uh, David Josephson, our producer. Uh, keep it here. News Radio 830. His karate lessons might not turn him into a black belt. Hi-ya! And even after band camp, he might not be the greatest musician. But with the 3% annual percentage yield you can earn on a PenFed premium online savings account, your goal of supporting his dreams... Thanks for everything, Mom and Dad. ...will always be worth it. 
Apply today at penfed.org slash savings. Federally insured by NCUA. $5 minimum to open account. To receive any advertised product, you must become a member of PenFed. PenFed's got great rates for everyone.